Welcome listeners, a new Japanese folktale episode just for you today, and it's a special one. To get a glimpse into not only a different period of time when these stories were told, but a completely different culture, providing a unique storytelling experience. Talking rabbits, giant ogres, murderous raccoons, and children being born out of peaches. Ah yes, Japanese folktales are awesome. And on top of these awesome tales, I bring you lovelies a special surprise. Today, I bring you the host of the Uncanny Japan podcast, Thurza Matsuro, to share her unique voice on today's episode. I'm stoked to have the opportunity to work with her. Having been a long-time listener of her podcast myself, it's such a special opportunity, one that I hope will be special for all of you too. Thurza's podcast is focused on everything Japanese that is mythical, folklore, and cryptid-orientated with various kinds of storytelling research topics, plus so much more. Thursday is such a super talented author, fluent in Japanese, and has a wonderfully soothing voice that makes her style perfect for podcasts. And with Thursday's lovely voice, I bring you two stories in this episode for your brilliant ears. Also, when possible, go check out her podcast when you can. You won't be disappointed, and as mentioned, it's called Uncanny Japan. Or visit her website, uncannyjapan.com and you'll be blown away by what awesome storytelling episodes she has. Let me read out some episode titles just to get you interested. The Ghost of Oiwa, Spider Lilies and Ghostly Trees. He cut off his what? <laughs> Behind the Curtain, Advice for People Coming to Japan, and Storytime, Cicada, where you'll hear real Japanese cicadas singing in the background. Thursa brings special insights to her episodes, recording them in Japan and providing context of the stories she reads with her in-depth knowledge about Japanese culture. So not only do you listen to relaxing tales by Thursa, she also provides the context around why those stories are written the way they are, or frames the story within a Japanese context. She really is worth your support, mates. Oh, and if you really like her style, think about supporting her on Patreon. Support her at www.patreon.com forward slash T-H-E-R-S-A-M-A-T-S-U-U-R-A. And before we begin, a huge thank you to my white tea warlords, Matthew J. Bauer, the brightest lotus flower, Maya of the soothing winds, divided by zero, the crashing of the shores. I own cows whose hooves know no bounds. And Lee Bauer, the crackling of thunderous clouds. Thank you for being so awesome and showing your love to this podcast. It's people like you that allow me to create episodes just like this. And for that, I'm so grateful. Thank you so, so much. And my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Mace Joe, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, and Robert Fisher. Thank you all for your ongoing support. Thanks a bunch. Okay, I bring you our first two tales of this episode with Thurza Matsura, our Japanese folktale storyteller. And thank you, Thurza, for being my guest today. And our last tale is in fact a chapter from Myths and Legends of Japan. And it talks about tea ceremonies and tea. Enjoy. Momotaro, or Little Peachling 
A long, long time ago, there lived an old man and an old woman. One day the old man went to the mountains to cut grass, and the old woman went to the river to wash clothes. While she was washing, a great big thing came tumbling and splashing down the stream. When the old woman saw it, she was very glad and pulled it to her with a piece of bamboo that laid nearby. When she took it up and looked at it, she saw that it was a very large peach. She then quickly finished her washing and returned home, intending to give the peach to her old man to eat. When she cut the peach in two, out came a child from the large kernel. Seeing this, the old couple rejoiced and named the child Momotaro, or Little Peachling, because he came from a peach. As both the old people took good care of him, he grew and became strong and enterprising. So the old couple had their expectations raised and bestowed still more care on his education. Momotaro, finding that he excelled everybody in strength, determined to cross over to the island of the devils, take their riches, and come back. He at once consulted with the old man and the old woman about the matter and got them to make him some dumplings. These he put in his pouch. Besides this, he made every kind of preparation for his journey to the island of the devils and set out. Then first a dog came to the side of the way and said, Momotaro, what have you there hanging at your belt? He replied, I have some of the very best Japanese millet dumplings. Give me one and I will go with you, said the dog. So Momotaro took a dumpling out of his pouch and gave it to the dog. Then a monkey came and got one the same way. And a pheasant also came flying and said, Give me a dumpling too and I will go along with you. So all three went along with him. In no time they arrived at the island of the devils and at once broke through the front gate. Momotaro first, then his three followers. Here they met a great multitude of the devil's retainers who showed fight, but they pressed still inwards and at last encountered the chief of the devils called Akandoji. Then came the tug of war. Akandoji made at Momotaro with an iron club, but Momotaro was ready for him and dodged him adroitly. At last they grappled each other, and without difficulty Momotaro just crushed down Akandoji and tied him with a rope so tight that he could not even move. All this was done in a fair fight. After this, Akandoji, the chief of the devils, said he would surrender all his riches "'Out with your riches, then,' said Momotaro, laughing, "'having collected and ranged in order a great pile of precious things. "'Momotaro took them and set out for his home, rejoicing, "'as he marched bravely back, "'that, with the help of his three companions, "'to whom he attributed all his success, "'he had been able so easily to accomplish his end.' Great was the joy of the old man and the old woman when Momotaro came back. He feasted everybody bountifully, told many stories of his adventure, displayed his riches, and at last became a leading man, a man of influence 
very rich and honorable, a man to be very much congratulated indeed. Broken Images Once there lived two brothers, who were princes in the land. The elder brother was a hunter. He loved the deep woods and the chase. He went from dawn to dark with his bow and his arrows. Swiftly he could run. He was strong and bright-eyed. The younger brother was a dreamer. His eyes were gentle. From dawn to dark he would sit with his book or with his thoughts. Sweetly could he sing of love or of war or of the green fields, and tell stories of the fairies, and of the time of the gods. Upon a fair day of summer, the hunter betook himself very early to the woods, as was his wont. But the dreamer took his book in his hand, and, musing, he wandered by the stream's side, where grew the yellow mimulus. It's the fairy's money, he said. It will buy all the joys of fairyland. So he went on his way smiling, and when he had continued for some time, he came to a holy shrine, and there led to the shrine a hundred steps, moss-grown and grey. Beside the steps were guardian lions carved in stone. Behind the shrine was Fugi, the mystic mountain, white and beautiful. And all the lesser hills rose softly up like prayers. O peerless Fugi, said the dreamer, O passionless wonder mountain, to see thee is to hear sweet music without sound, the blessed harmony of silence. Then he climbed the steps, moss grown and grey, and the lions that were carved in stone rose up and followed him, and they came with him to the inner gates of the shrine and stayed there. In the shrine there was a hush of noonday, the smoke of incense curled and hung upon the air, dimly shone the gold and the bronze the lights and the mystic mirrors. There was a sound of singing in the shrine, and turning, the dreamer saw a man who stood at his right hand. The man was taller than any child of earth. Moreover, his face shone with the glory of a youth that could not pass away. He held a year-old child upon his arm and hushed it to sleep. Shh, shh, singing a strange melody. When the babe fell asleep, he was well pleased and smiled. What babe is that? said the dreamer. Oh, dreamer, it is no babe, but a spirit. Then, my lord, what are you? said the dreamer. I am Jizo, who guards the souls of little children. It is most pitiful to hear their crying. When they come to the sandy riverbed, the Sainokawara, oh, dreamer, they come alone, as needs they must, wailing and wandering, stretching out their pretty hands. They have a task, which is to pile stones for a tower of prayer. But in the night come the Oni to throw down the towers and to scatter all the stones. So the children are made afraid, and their labor is lost. What then, my lord Jizo? said the dreamer. Why then I come for the Great One gives me leave, and I call, Come hither, wandering souls, and they fly to me, 
that I may hide them in my long sleeves. I carry them in my arms and on my breast, where they lie, light and cold, as light and cold as the morning mist upon the mountains. When he had spoken, the year-old child stirred and murmured, so he rocked it, and wandered to and fro in the quiet temple court, and hushed it as he went. So the swift moments flew, and the noontide passed away. Presently, they came to the shrine, a lady most gentle and beautiful. Grey was her robe, and she had silver sandals on her feet. She said, I am called the Merciful, for mankind's dear sake. I have refused eternal peace. The Great One has given to me a thousand loving arms, arms of mercy, and my hands are full of gifts. O oh, dreamer, when you dream your dreams, you shall see me in my lotus boat when I sail upon the mystic mirror. Lady, Lady Quanon, said the dreamer. Then came one clothed in blue, speaking with a sweet, deep, well-known voice. I am Benton, the goddess of the sea and the goddess of song. My dragons are about me and beneath my feet. See their green scales and their opal eyes. Greeting, O oh dreamer. After her there came a band of blooming boys, laughing and holding out their rosy arms. We are the sons of the sea goddess. Come, dreamer, come to our cool caves. The god of Rhodes came, and his three messengers with him. Three apes were the three messengers. The first ape covered his eyes with his hands, for he could see no evil thing. The second ape covered his ears with his hands, for he could hear no evil thing. The third ape covered his mouth with his hands, for he could speak no evil thing. Then came she, the fearful woman who takes the clothes of the dead who are not able to pay their toll, so that they may stand shivering at the entrance of the mysterious three ways. They are unfortunate indeed. And many and many a vision the dreamer saw in that enchanted shrine, and dark night fell with storm and tempest, and the sound of rain upon the roof. Yet the dreamer never stirred. Suddenly, there was a sound of hurrying feet without. A voice called loud, My brother! My brother! My brother! In sprang the hunter through the golden temple doors. Where are you? He cried. My brother! My brother! He had his swinging lantern in his hand and held it high as he flung his long-blown hair back over his shoulder. His face was bright with the rain upon it. His eyes were as keen as an eagle's. Oh, brother, said the dreamer, and ran to meet him. Now the dear gods be thanked that I have you safe and sound, said the hunter. Half the night I have sought you wandering in the forest and by the stream's side, I was all to blame for leaving you, my little brother. With that, he took his brother's face between his two warm hands. But the dreamer sighed. <sighs> I have been with the gods all night, he said, and I think I see them still. The place is holy. Then the hunter flashed his light upon the temple walls, upon the gilding and the bronze. What see you, brother? I see no gods. He said, I see a row of stones 
broken images, grey with moss-grown feet. They are grey because they are sad. They are sad because they are forgotten, said the dreamer. But the hunter took him by the hand and led him into the night. The dreamer said, Oh brother, how sweet is the scent of the bean fields after the rain. Now bind your sandals on, said the hunter, and I'll run you a race to our home. And thus ends the tale of Broken Images. Concerning Tea The first cup moistens my lips and throat. The second cup breaks my loneliness. The third cup searches my inmost being. The fourth cup raises a slight perspiration. All the wrong of life passes away through my pores. At the fifth cup, I am purified. The sixth cup calls me to the realms of immortals. The seventh cup... Ah. But I could take no more. I only feel the breath of cool wind that rises in my sleeves. Let me ride on this sweet breeze and waft thither. Tea drinking in England and Japan. In England, we regard tea simply as a beverage a refreshing and mild stimulant over which women are wont to gossip with their neighbours. There is nothing romantic about our teapots and kettles and spoons. They come from the kitchen and are returned to the kitchen with prescribed regularity. We have a few stock comments on the subject of tea and can quote the exact price our grandmothers paid for this beverage. We have our opinions as to whether it is best taken with or without sugar and have sometimes found it efficacious in driving away a headache. When tea reached our own country in 1650, it was referred to as that excellent and by all physicians approved China drink, called by the Chinese Chia, and by the other nations Tay, alias Tea. In 1711, the spectator remarked, I would therefore, in a particular manner, recommend these my speculations to all well-regulated families that set apart an hour every morning for tea, bread and butter, and would earnestly advise them for their good to order this paper to be punctually served up and to be looked upon as part of the tea equipage. Dr. Johnson described himself as a hardened and shameless tea drinker, who for 20 years diluted his meals with only the infusion of the fascinating plant, who with tea amused the evening, with tea solaced the midnight, and with tea welcomed the morning. But there is no romance, no old tradition associated with our tea drinking in this country. Perhaps it is all well that the ladies sitting in our fashionable drawing rooms are unacquainted by this grim and pathetic legend that narrates how Buddhist priests fell asleep during their meditations. When they awoke, they cut off their offending eyelids and flung them on the ground, where they were immediately transformed into the first tea plant. In Japan, tea drinking has become a ritual. It is not so much a social function as it is a time for meditation. The elaborate tea ceremonies, cha no yu, have their tea master's etiquette and numerous observations. A cup of Japanese tea is combined with spiritual and artistic enlightenment. But before discussing these very interesting ceremonies, we must learn about the significance of tea in China. 
for it was the drinking of this beverage in the celestial kingdom, associated with the rare porcelain and aesthetic and religious thought that inspired the tea cult in the land of the gods. Tea in China The tea plant, a native of southern China, was originally regarded as a medicine. It was referred to in the classics by such name as Tao, Tse, Chung, Ka, and Ming, and was much esteemed on account of its medicinal properties. It was regarded as an excellent lotion for strengthening the eyes, and moreover, had the power to banish fatigue and strengthen the will and delight the soul. It was sometimes made in the form of a paste, and was believed to be efficacious in reducing rheumatic pain. The Taoists went so far as to claim that tea was one of the ingredients of the elixir of life, while the Buddhist priests drank it whenever it was necessary for them to meditate during the long hours of the night. Luwu and the Cha King In the 4th and 5th centuries, we find that tea became a highly favoured beverage among the people of Yangtze Kiang Valley. At this time too, poets wax eloquent in its praise, and described tea as the froth of liquid jade. But tea at the time was a very horrible concoction indeed, for it was boiled with rice, salt, ginger, orange peel, and not infrequently, with onions. However, Lu Wu, who lived in the 8th century, discountenanced the strange mixture we have just referred to. He was the first Chinese tea master, and not only did he idolize tea, but he saw, with keen poetic insight, that the ceremony of drinking it made for harmony and order in daily life. In his Cha King, the holy scripture of tea, he describes the nature of the tea plant and how its leaves should be gathered and selected. He was of the opinion that the best leaves should have creases like the leathern boot of Tartar horsemen, curl like the dewlap of a mighty bullock, unfold like a mist rising out of a ravine, gleam like a lake touched by a zephyr, and be wet and soft like fine earth, newly swept by the rain. Lu Wu describes the various utensils connected with the tea ceremony, and asserts that the green beverage should be drunk from blue porcelain cups. He discourses on the subject of the choice of water and the manner of boiling it. In poetical language, he describes the three stages of boiling. He compares the little bubbles of the first boil with the eyes of fishes, the bubbles of a second boil, with a fountain crowned with clustering crystal beads, and the final boil is described as resembling the surge of miniature billows. The concluding chapters of Chaking deal with the vulgar and unorthodox methods of drinking tea, and the ardent master gives a list of celebrated tea drinkers, and enumerates the famous Chinese tea plantations. Lu Wu's fascinating book was regarded as a masterpiece. He was sought after by the emperor Taizung, attracted many disciples, and was regarded as the greatest authority on tea and tea drinking. His fame did not die with him, for since his death, Chinese tea merchants have worshipped him as a tutelary god. The Japanese Tea Ceremony it is believed that the greatest Buddhist saint, Dengyo Daishi, introduced tea into Japan from China in AD 805. 
In any case, tea drinking in Nippon was associated with Buddhism, and most particularly with the Zen sect, which had incorporated so many of the Taoist doctrines. The priests of this order drank tea from a single bowl before the image of Bodhi Drama, otherwise known as Daruma. They did so in the spirit of reverence and regarded the tea drinking as a holy sacrament. It was this Zen observance, strictly of a religious nature, which finally developed into the Japanese tea ceremony. The tea ceremonies, writes Professor B.H. Chamberlain, have undergone three transformations during the six or seven hundred years of their existence. They have passed through a medico-religious stage, a luxurious stage, and lastly, an aesthetic stage. In the religious stage, the Buddhist priest Aisai wrote a pamphlet entitled The Salutary Influence of Tea Drinking, in which he asserted that this beverage had the power to drive away evil spirits. He introduced a religious ceremonial in regard to the worship of ancestors, accompanied by the beating of drums and the burning of incense. Aisai wrote his tract with the intention of converting Minamoto no Sanetomo for his vicious love of the wine cup, and endeavoured to show the superiority of the tea plant over the juice of the grape. We find the tea ceremonies for the time being lost their religious significance. The daimyos, writes Professor Chamberlain, who took daily part in them reclined on couches spread with tiger skins and leopard skins. The walls of their spacious apartments in which the guests assembled were hung not only with Buddha's pictures, but with damask and brocade, with gold and silver vessels and swords in splendid sheaths. Precious perfumes were burnt, rare fishes and strange birds were served up with sweetmeats and wine, and the point of the entertainment consisted in guessing where the material for each cup of tea had been produced, for as many brands as possible were brought in to serve as a puzzle or de societe. Every right guest procured for him who made it the gift of one of the treasures that were hung around the room, but he was not allowed to carry it away himself the rules of the tea ceremonies as then practiced, that all the things rich and rare that were exhibited must be given by their winners to the singing and dancing girls, troops of whom were present to help the company in the carousel. This variety of tea ceremony, which appears to have been more of an orgy than anything else, reflected the luxurious and dissolute age in which it was practiced. The tea ceremony, in its more enduring and characteristic form, was destined to abandon all vulgar display, to embrace a certain amount of religion and philosophy, and above all to afford a means of studying art and the beauty of nature. The tea room became not a place of carousal, but a place where a wayfarer might find peace in solemn meditation. Even the garden path leading to the tea room had its symbolic meaning, for it signified the first stage of self-illumination. The following was Kobori Enshu's idea of the path leading to the tea room. A cluster of summer teas, a bit of the sea, a pale evening moon. Such a scene was intended to convey to the wayfarer a sense of spiritual light. The trees, sea, and moon awakened old dreams, and their presence made the guests eager to pass into the greater joys of the tea room. 
no samurai was allowed to take his sword into the fragrant sanctuary of peace, and in many tea rooms there was a low door through which the guests entered with bowed head, as a sign of humility. In silence the guests made obeisance before a kakemono, or some simple and beautiful flower on the tokonomo, otherwise known as an alcove, and then seated themselves upon the mats. When they had done so, the host entered and the water was heard to boil in the kettle with a musical sound, because of some pieces of iron which it contained. Even the boiling of the kettle was associated with poetical ideas, for the song of the water and the metal was intended to suggest the echoes of a cataract muffled by clouds, of a distant sea breaking among the rocks, a rainstorm sweeping through a bamboo forest, or of the sowing of pines on some far away hill. There was a sense of harmony in the tea room. The light was like the mellow light of evening, and the garment of the company were as quiet and unobtrusive as the grey wings of a moth. In this peaceful apartment, the guests drank their tea and meditated, and went forth into the world again better and stronger, for having contemplated in silence the beautiful and the noble in religion, art, and nature, seeking always to be in harmony with the great rhythm of the universe, they were ever prepared to enter the unknown. The Passing of Rikyu Rikyu was one of the greatest of tea masters, and for long he remained the friend of Taiko Hideyoshi, but the age in which he lived was full of treachery. There were many who were jealous of Rikyu, many who sought his death. When a coldness sprang up between Hideyoshi and Rikyu, the enemies of the great tea master made use of this breach of friendship by spreading the report that Rikyu intended to add poison to a cup of tea and present it to his distinguished patron. Hideyoshi soon heard of the rumor, and without troubling to examine the matter, he condemned Rikyu to die by his own hand. On the last day of the famous tea master's life, he invited many of his disciples to join with him in his final tea ceremony. As they walked up the garden path, it seemed that ghosts whispered in the rustling leaves. When the disciples entered the tea room, they saw a kakemono hanging in the tokonoma, and when they raised their sorrowful eyes, they saw that the writing described the passing of all earthly things. There was poetry in the singing of the tea kettle, but it was a sad song, like the plaintive cry of an insect. Riku came into the tea room, calm and dignified, and according to the custom, he allowed the chief guest to admire the various articles associated with the tea ceremony. When all the guests had gazed upon them, noting their beauty with a heavy heart, Rikyu presented each disciple with a souvenir. He took his own cup in his hand and said, Never again shall this cup, polluted by the lips of misfortune, be used by man. Having spoken these words, he broke the cup as a sign that the tea ceremony was over, and the guests bade a sad farewell and departed. Only one remained to witness, not the drinking of another cup of tea, but the passing of Rikiyu. The great master took off his outer garment and revealed the pure white robe of death. Still calm and dignified, he looked upon his dagger and then recited the following verse with unfaltering voice. Welcome, Welcome to, to thee, 
O sword of eternity, through Buddha and through Daruma alike, thou hast cleft thy way. He who loved to quote the old poem, to those who long only for flowers fain, would I show the full-blown spring which abides in the toiling buds of snow-covered hills, has crowned the Japanese tea ceremony with an immortal flower. The Legend of the Tea Plant Daruma was an Indian sage, whose image, as we have already seen, was associated with the ritualistic drinking of tea by the Zen sect in Japan. He is said to have been the son of a Hindu king, and had received instruction from Panyatara. When he had completed his studies, he retired to Luoyang, where he remained seated in meditation for nine years. During this period, the sage was tempted after the manner of St. Anthony. He wrestled with these temptations by continually reciting sacred scriptures, but the frequent repetition of the word jewel lost its spiritual significance and became associated with a precious stone worn in the ear of a certain lovely woman. Even the word lotus, so sacred to all true Buddhists, ceased to be the symbol of the Lord Buddha and suggested to Daruma the opening of a girl's fair mouth. His temptations increased and he was transported to an Indian city where he found himself among a vast crowd of worshippers. He saw strange deities with horrible symbols upon their foreheads and rajas and princes riding upon elephants surrounded by a great company of dancing girls. The great crowd of people surged forward and Daruma with them, till they came to a temple with innumerable pinnacles, a temple covered with a multitude of foul forms, and it seemed to Daruma that he met and kissed the woman who had changed the meaning of jewel and lotus. Then suddenly the vision departed, and Daruma awoke to find himself sitting under the Chinese sky. The sage, who had fallen asleep during his meditation, was truly penitent for the neglect of his devotions, and, taking a knife from his girdle, he cut off his eyelids and cast them upon the ground, saying, Oh, thou perfectly awakened! The eyelids were transformed into the tea plant, from which was made a beverage that would repel slumber and allow Buddhist priests to their vigils. Daruma Daruma is generally represented without legs, for according to one version of the legend we have just given, he lost his limbs as a result of the nine-year meditation. Netsuki, carvers depict him in a full, bag-like garment with a scowling face and lidless eyes. He is sometimes presented in Japanese art as being surrounded with cobwebs, and there is a very subtle variation of the saint portrayed as a female Daruma, which is nothing less than a playful jest against Japanese women who could not be expected to remain silent for nine years. An owl is frequently associated with Daruma, and in his journey to Japan, he is pictured as standing on waves and supported by a millet stalk. Three years after Daruma's death, he was seen walking across the western mountains of China, and it was observed that he carried one shoe in his right hand. When Daruma's tomb was opened by the order of the emperor, it was found only to contain a shoe which the saint had forgotten to take away with him. And this concludes the Tea Ceremonies chapter. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's Japanese tales, the lovely Thurza Matsura, and the interesting Tea Ceremonies chapter 
from the Japanese book Myths and Legends of Japan. And another big thank you, Thursa, for joining me today on this episode. It was awesome to have you on here and showcase your lovely voice to all these listeners. I hope all of you get a chance to listen to her podcast as well. Just in case you missed it the first time, it's Uncanny Japan. Well worth your time, mates. You'll really enjoy it. Alright, you lovelies, have a fantastic weekend. And as always, till next we meet.